Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. If you're interested in getting some merch, visit my YouTube channel, or you can donate directly via Venmo or PayPal following the links in the description. You can submit case suggestions to southerngirlcrimestories at gmail.com or DM me on social media. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. At the age of 39, Amy Leanne Hall was living in the small community of New York, Oklahoma, near Highway 56. She had three children, 18-year-old Kaysen, 16-year-old Chloe, and 14-year-old Nicole. All three teens were students at Beggs High School. Kaysen was a senior running back on the Beggs High School football team. When he wasn't playing football, he was outdoors, fishing, and swimming. He planned to play college football, major in architecture, and volunteer as a firefighter. Chloe loved makeup, shopping, hanging out with friends, and eating her favorite meal, her grandmother's fried chicken, mashed potatoes, and sweet carrots. She was planning to attend college to become an obstetrician gynecologist. However, on the morning of November 1st, 2018, all that would change. Amy's father woke up to see Amy next to his bed, getting a gun and running out of his house. He attempted to run after her, but it was too late. Shockingly, Amy would end up shooting all three teenagers. Kaysen was shot while sleeping and died at the scene. Kaysen's friend, Edison Baldridge, had also been sleeping in the room, but was not physically harmed. She then walked down the hall to Chloe's room and opened fire on her. She also fired at her 14-year-old Nicole, who was sleeping in the same room as Chloe, but it only grazed her head and neck area, and she was able to escape to the bathroom. Nicole bravely confronted her mother and was able to take the gun away from her. Edison would later say that the night prior seemed like a normal night. Amy cooked dinner, told them good night, and the kids went to bed. He said he saw Amy come into the bedroom and turn the light on. He said she then stood by the bed, said sorry to him, and then opened fire. Since Edison was not harmed, he was able to call 911 at 6.30 a.m. When police arrived at the home, they found Kaysen dead and his two teenage sisters wounded, one in critical condition and the other stable. They were rushed to a hospital in Tulsa, where Chloe was placed on life support. Sadly, she would succumb to her injuries a few days later. Her organs were donated and saved the lives of eight people. Amy fled the scene before the police arrived and led police on a high-speed chase for four miles until she was finally pulled over and arrested on Highway 56 near Okmulgee Lake. She went on to tell police that her actions were to protect the children from her abusive, estranged husband. Deputies revealed they were called to the house multiple times in the past due to domestic issues. 
According to online court records, Amy was in the middle of a two-year custody battle with the father of her children. Amy alleged that her ex, who had been granted partial custody, sent threatening and inappropriate text messages to their son. She also alleged he would show up at their home at all hours of the night. In June 2016, her ex claimed that Amy was mentally unstable and psychologically abusive. State charges against Amy were dismissed after it was shown that the victims were all members of an American Indian tribe and the crime occurred within the Muscogee Nation Reservation. She pleaded guilty to two counts of murder and one count of assault with intent to commit murder. She said she was sorry for what she did and thought she was saving them with plans to shoot herself, but that changed when her youngest daughter took the gun away from her. In 2019, Amy was also charged with assault and battery of a fellow inmate after grabbing and shoving the inmate. She also attempted to take her own life, but was unsuccessful. Roger Dean was born on February 28, 1934, in South Dakota. At the age of 51, Roger was living with his wife Doris Jean, known as DJ, in Littleton, Colorado. On November 21, 1985, a masked intruder entered their house and forced him to tie up his wife and place duct tape over her eyes. Next, the intruder demanded to know how much money was in the couple's savings account, which was $30,000. He then took Roger to another room where they could be heard talking to each other, but DJ couldn't make out what they were saying. As they were about to leave to head to the bank, the intruder fired once at Roger, striking a banister. As Roger went to flee from him, he was shot multiple times at point-blank range. He tried to run again and made it all the way to the driveway, where he ultimately collapsed. After the shooting, a neighbor saw the suspect, a black man in his 20s, running down the street, hopping into a car and driving off. Roger was rushed to the hospital but would not survive. At the scene, a detective found the suspect's brown ski mask on the living room floor and was able to collect a hair from it. But in 1985, DNA technology wasn't advanced enough to retrieve any useful information. In 1990, five years after Dean's murder, his widow received a threatening letter from someone claiming to be his killer. The writer demanded $100,000 from her and threatened to kill her daughter, Tammy, if she didn't comply and hand over the money. The letter read, On a cold, snowy morning in November of 85, I had your husband, Roger, murdered. At this point, you are probably frightened and hoping this is some kind of joke. Well, you should be frightened because this is no joke. To prove who I am, I will recount some events that took place that morning. The letter provided details of the murder and mentioned that Roger's wife had been in the bathtub before the attack and stated, I left my black bag which contained tape, rope, a knife, and some of your jewelry. In the struggle, I took off my ski mask so Roger would know who killed him and why. I am one of the two people who came into your lone tree home with orders to kill Roger if he did not pay his debt. After receiving the letter, they notified the police and the FBI. Authorities believed the letter came from the killer and felt they had to put DJ and Tammy under FBI protection and constant surveillance. 
On July 27, 1990, the extortionist called as planned, demanding money that Roger owed him. The FBI traced the call to a phone booth in nearby Denver. However, he was gone by the time police arrived. After nearly a dozen phone calls, the extortionist told DJ to go to a supermarket 20 miles north of her house and wait for further instructions. With an FBI agent hidden in her car and surveillance fans nearby, she attempted to lure the extortionist into a trap. After a few minutes, a phone call came in at the payphone. The extortionist gave her instructions on where to drop the money. He told her to leave $100,000 in an alley behind an apartment complex in downtown Denver. At 10 p.m. on August 19, 1990, DJ left the money at the designated spot. When Tammy arrived back home, she received a phone call from the extortionist claiming she didn't follow his instructions. He also said that he would hurt her because of it. However, the money was never picked up and the extortionist never contacted the Deans again. That same year, more letters would arrive at their home and an occasional cassette tape. However, with very few leads to go on, the case would go cold. In 2003, investigators were able to develop a DNA profile from the mask, but there were no hits in the CODIS database. In 2018, CBI investigators sent the sample to a different lab for another analysis. Then in 2020, two years later, they reached out to a genetic genealogist. The genealogist found a family with two sons, one of whom was the likely killer. That's what led investigators to Michael Jefferson, who was living in Colorado in 1985. Detectives began to monitor Jefferson, who was now living in New Orleans. In 2021, he boarded a plane traveling from New Orleans to Los Angeles. Two detectives from Colorado boarded the flight, with one sitting directly across from Jefferson. During the flight, detectives saw Jefferson drinking from a plastic water bottle before handing it to a flight attendant to be placed in the trash. Detectives intercepted the disposal and collected the water bottle without him knowing. When investigators processed the DNA sample from the water bottle, they found it was consistent with the genetic material found on the ski mask in 1985. 64-year-old Michael Jefferson was then arrested and charged with first-degree murder and kidnapping. The affidavit does not explain if Roger and Jefferson knew one another at the time. An investigator who heard his voice also noted that it sounded the same as the extortionist, but the statute of limitations had run out for any extortion-related charges. However, according to some sources, investigators no longer believe that the extortionist and the killer were the same people, as he got several of the facts wrong when contacting the deans. Sadly, DJ passed away in 2020 at age 84, just a year before Jefferson's arrest. Virginia Bradford Freeman was born on September 6, 1941, and went by Ginger. At the age of 40, Ginger lived in College Station, Texas, and worked as a real estate agent. She was also a wife and mother of four, who was known for having an energetic personality. She was active in her community and volunteered for the American Red Cross and the local Girl Scouts. 
On December 1, 1981, Virginia left her real estate office at about 3 p.m. and stopped at home, where she told her children about a potential sale and said that she would be a little late for dinner that evening. She told them to get dressed and said she'd see them a little later than planned before taking off in her white 1981 Chevrolet station wagon. The man had claimed to have the $73,000 necessary to purchase the property and requested a viewing of the property that day. The man never identified himself and didn't ask for Ginger by name. The property stood alone in an isolated spot on Green's Prairie Road near Welburn in Texas. By 6 p.m., when Ginger had not returned home, her husband, Charles Freeman, started to grow concerned. He called the real estate office only to discover that none of his wife's work colleagues had seen her in the past four hours. They informed him that she went to show a man with a country accent a property on Greens Prairie Road and hadn't returned. At about 7 p.m., Charles and a friend took off to the house she was showing to search for her and notified the police. When they arrived, they found her car parked at the vacant home. Upon searching around the house, he would shockingly find Ginger's deceased body behind the home. She was partially clothed and had been strangled to death and was found with blunt force trauma and stab wounds. In 1981, DNA was virtually unknown to law enforcement, but her fingernails were scraped for possible skin particles from the perpetrator. Of course, investigators first looked into Charles as a possible suspect, but he had a solid alibi, and they found no indications of trouble in the marriage, so he was quickly ruled out. Investigators would receive an early lead from a local brick mason who told officials that he drove by the crime scene around the time of the murder. The bricklayer believed he saw a man and his vehicle parked in front of Ginger's car. So he was hypnotized, which yielded a composite sketch and a partial license plate, but no firm leads. The case stalled for two years until a possible lead emerged connected to another homicide. Henry Lee Lucas was convicted of killing a woman in Ringgold, Texas, about 250 miles from where Ginger was killed. When Lucas was sentenced to death row, he shocked the court when he claimed to have killed many more women. When investigators learned that Lucas had been in Brazos County around the time of Ginger's murder, they knew it was possible. So they showed him a picture of her, and Lucas said he had stabbed her in the neck. But when he couldn't describe the crime scene, they realized he'd made a false confession to buy himself time as he sat on death row. Again, the case stalled and went cold until 1997, when advancements in DNA technology allowed investigators to process the DNA found under her preserved fingernails. Using that DNA, Ginger's husband, Charles, along with several other suspects, were ruled out as her killer. Advancements had also been made to the license plate database and allowed them to perform a search on the partial license plate obtained in 1981. This pointed them to a former Army soldier stationed at Fort Hood at the time of the murder. However, after being interviewed and swabbed for DNA, the soldier was ruled out as a suspect. The team refocused its efforts on revisiting dozens of cases within the past 40 years. A particular one caught their attention, a former appliance repairman on death row, James Otto Earhart. 
Six years after Ginger's murder, Earhart had been convicted of killing nine-year-old Candy Kirtland, less than 10 miles from Ginger's crime scene. In 1997, investigators were determined to test Earhart's DNA to see if they could match it to the DNA profile generated from evidence on Ginger. They immediately ran into a roadblock. They needed more than just suspicion of Earhart's involvement to obtain the convicted murderer's DNA. Once again, the case stalled. Finally, in 2018, Parabon Nano Labs were able to create a snapshot DNA analysis of the suspect. The $3,600 fee to do this was paid for by National Geographic, who agreed to pick up the bill in return for permission to film an episode about it as part of the Nat Geo Explorer series. Then, genetic genealogy was used to link Earhart to Ginger's murder. However, Obtaining Earhart's DNA would prove to be an enormous obstacle as it was not collected before he was executed by lethal injection in 1999, which meant that they would have to exhume his body. Moreover, investigators would have to convince a court that there was legal cause to exhume Earhart's body. With help from Earhart's son, the team got the necessary green light to move forward and even provided a sample of his DNA. Earhart was exhumed in June 2018, and investigators were shocked to discover that he had not been buried in a coffin, but in a cardboard box instead. Unfortunately, the box had disintegrated over the years, and his body was in a very poor state of preservation. Thankfully, they were able to get a sample of Earhart's DNA, and on August 30, 2019, it matched the DNA profile from Ginger's fingernail clippings. Their one regret was that they couldn't put handcuffs on Earhart after solving the 38-year-old case. On May 14, 1987, in Poplar Bluff, Missouri, shoppers at the Valley Plaza Shopping Center noticed a foul odor coming from a maroon 1979 Oldsmobile Regency 98. An officer arrived and opened it, and the sight and smell forced him to take a step back. Found in the car was the body of a white male who had been shot to death and had marijuana scattered across his chest. Investigators were able to find numerous fingerprints on the interior and exterior of the car. It turned out that the body belonged to 39-year-old career criminal Tommy Rowland. Tommy was last seen alive three days earlier at 6 p.m. at a local bar called the Duck Inn, sitting with a younger guy. The initial suspect in the case was Yule Joe Freeman. Going off a tip, authorities were able to track the deadly shooting to a property in rural Carter County. While all the evidence they had pointed to Freeman as the man who pulled the trigger, they were still unable to officially charge him and the case would go cold. Then over two decades later, in 2011, the file was reopened by cold case detective Bryce Colvin. When he retraced Tommy's final steps in the original report, the last man he was seen with was Freeman. Tommy and Freeman were together at the bar the night he went missing. When the two men went to leave, Tommy's wife, Rhonda, stopped them. She asked Tommy if she could go with him, and he said he would rather her not go and made her stay behind. After leaving the bar, Rhonda never saw her husband alive again. Tommy was unemployed then, and to earn money, 
he became the middleman for a large-scale drug trafficking operation. His job was to get large quantities of marijuana into the hands of lower-level street dealers. Investigators believe that someone wanted him out of that role, and that's why Tommy was murdered. According to the investigation, Freeman was allegedly traveling to Wapapello during the evening of May 11, 1987 with another man when Freeman wanted to stop at a convenience store at the intersection of Highway T and U.S. Highway 60 to buy cigarettes. While in the parking lot, two men pulled up in a green Chevrolet Nova and spoke with Freeman. About a minute later, Freeman entered the Nova and left with the two men. Tommy's wife, Rhonda, who was a bartender at the Duck Inn on the day of her husband's disappearance, said she noticed Freeman getting out of the Nova when he arrived at the Duck Inn at approximately 4 p.m. Rhonda said Tommy and Freeman had a private conversation when she allegedly overheard her husband whisper they would take Highway KK to Highway W as an alternate route to Elsinore. Tommy then left the Duck Inn at about 6 p.m., driving Freeman in his Oldsmobile. From there, Tommy reportedly drove Freeman to Route 2, Box 2635B in Elsinore, also known as the Old Davidson Place, where Freeman allegedly shot Tommy while he sat in the driver's seat of the Oldsmobile. Freeman allegedly removed Tommy's body from the driver's seat and placed him in the trunk. Afterward, Freeman drove the Oldsmobile to the Valley Plaza where it was ultimately found. Two witnesses reported seeing a white male with dark hair and a mustache sitting in a maroon car at the Valley Plaza parking lot at approximately 9.30 p.m. on the evening of the murder. Another witness claimed to see Freeman walking across the Valley Plaza parking lot and said she gave him a ride to another person's house. While the Poplar Bluff police were investigating the murder, several people told investigators Freeman was allegedly hired to kill Tommy. A woman who lived at the old Davidson place stated she was contacted by a man who told her he heard Freeman say he could make $5,000 for killing Tommy Rowland, who the woman said had ripped off the St. Louis drug connection. The woman said Freeman also was allegedly going to be paid a recovery fee for recovering the marijuana from Tommy. This information led investigators to the property in Carter County, where then-police detective Donwell Clark conducted an examination. Clark located a blood stain on a gravel driveway in front of the residence. The stain was examined and tested positive as human blood and also matched a sample collected from the Oldsmobile bumper. However, the lab was unable to confirm the samples as belonging to Tommy. Then, Lieutenant Vaughn was interviewing a man who allegedly said he was approached by Freeman in April 1987, seeking help with the contract killing of Tommy. The man said he knew Freeman owned a 38 caliber revolver and that Freeman planned to move to Texas on May 10, 1987. In addition, the man said he knew a contract had been placed on Tommy for not paying for 20 pounds of marijuana and that Freeman wanted to cut Tommy out and purchase straight from the supplier. Freeman is currently serving a 40-year prison sentence at the South Central Correctional Center in Liking, Missouri for first-degree assault and armed criminal action that took place in 2005. 34 years after the murder, 60-year-old Yule Joe Freeman was charged with the first-degree murder of Tommy Rowland 
after newly obtained evidence made the arrest possible. That evidence included cigarette butts found in Tommy's car and the boots he wore when Tommy was killed. On April 11, 1992, a man walking his dog along the Mississippi River in Moline, Illinois, noticed a trash bag floating in the water near Moline's old 17th Street Park. He retrieved the bag, pulled it onto the riverbank, and opened it to find something shocking. Inside were the remains of a newborn baby. Investigators took DNA samples but lacked the technology at the time to make much progress in the investigation. An autopsy on the infant's remains determined that the baby's cause of death was suffocation and hypothermia. The newborn was later buried in Riverside Cemetery and named Baby Girl April. Investigators got a break in the case 22 years later, in 2014, when they retested some of the original samples. They were then able to identify a female DNA profile connected to the crime scene evidence. A warrant was issued for the arrest of that female, and her DNA was entered into a statewide database. Later, the DNA profile was submitted to Parabon Nanolabs, where analysts were able to identify the mother of the newborn as Angela Siebke. Detectives with the Moline Police Department then traveled to Siebke's home in Ohio and served her with a warrant for a sample of her DNA, which matched the sample found at the crime scene. Siebke was taken into custody and held on a $1 million bond. Even with Siebke's arrest, many questions remained about the circumstances of baby April's death. Throughout the proceedings, her attorney maintained that the child was stillborn, but a defense expert testified and stated that the cause of the child's death was exposure to cold and asphyxia. However, another expert witness in the case disputed this claim and said it was not possible to determine if the baby was born alive. The reason for this was that the infant's mastoid air sacs were not examined during the autopsy. Siebke, who initially faced first-degree murder, pleaded guilty in November to endangering a child's life resulting in death, a Class three felony in Rock Island County Circuit Court. Because she has been behind bars since her arrest, 48-year-old Siebke had less than a year remaining on her sentence which Judge Furr reportedly furloughed at the request of her attorney. Siebke had ultimately confessed to tossing the baby in the Mississippi River when she was 18 years old and never told a single soul about it. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.